WLRN edition 91 broadcasting in three, two, one. I was born woman. Off my knees, I will stand for my liberation. Sisters, rise again. I was born woman. Off my knees, I will stand for my liberation. Rise and rise again. Greetings and welcome to the 91st edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. This is Emily. This month's edition focuses on body image and feminism. We'll hear an excerpt of a conversation I had with Zanetta, a 26-year-old radical lesbian feminist from the Pacific Northwest. We'll also hear commentary from Sekhmet Shiao. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, Here's Mary O'Neill with Women's News from Around the Globe for this Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. Take it away, Mary. Thanks, Emily. This month's World News segment begins with stories from Israel and Gaza and focuses on the experiences of women and girls on both sides of the conflict. On October 7th, Hamas militants crossed the border from Gaza into Israel and massacred at least 1,400 people injured thousands and captured over 200 as hostages. Several kibbutzim in a music festival received the brunt of the attack where women, children, infants and the elderly were among those tortured and murdered. There was also evidence that militants raped women and girls, often before killing them. Following the attack, protests were held around the world, some in support of Israel and some in support of Palestine. Violence and bigotry has also erupted as a result. In Chicago, a landlord killed a young Palestinian-American boy and injured the boy's mother, simply because they were Muslim. The US, UK, and France have also noted a rise in anti-Semitic attacks, and protests in Australia turned ugly, using slurs against the Jewish community. The United Nations Population Fund reports that currently there are more than 50,000 pregnant women in Gaza. With a dire lack of medical services, food, water, and fuel, these women are at risk of injury and death before, during, and after childbirth. Dr. Siobhan Corcoran of Ireland's National Maternity Hospital said in an interview, Pregnant women are immunocompromised. They're particularly vulnerable to infection. These can be very easily treated with appropriate antibiotics. If these drugs can't be accessed, women will die of very preventable deaths. Screenings for complications like preeclampsia will also be limited, if not non-existent, for many women. On October 8th, in the aftermath of the initial attack by Hamas on October 7th, people criticized UN women for posting trans lesbians or lesbians on social media and then doubling down by tweeting, remember, trans lesbians are lesbians. Let's uplift and honor every expression of love and identity. Happy International Lesbian Day. Over this period, UN women did not issue a statement or draft an original post about the attack, despite reports of the mass rape and murder of women and girls in Israel. Finally, the organization responded, condemning the attack. Their subsequent report calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire following a review of the dire effects of the conflict on women and girls. It estimates that 493,000 women and girls have been or will be displaced from their homes in Gaza, and that over 668,000 need protection from sex-based violence. The health ministry in Palestine reports that the death toll has risen to over 8,000 as Israel continues bombardment and ground invasion. Of the dead, 3,400 are children. The UN also states that over 115,000 civilians were sheltering with patients and doctors in hospitals in the north, fearing the attacks in the south. These stories conclude this month's coverage of the conflict in Israel and Gaza. A recent study published in the European Journal of Endocrinology found that trans-identified men using estrogen are 93% more likely to suffer from heart disease than other men, and trans-identified women are 63% more likely compared to other women. The study included 2,671 trans-identified people living in Denmark, all in their mid-20s. 
In a story that went viral in early October, the Grace Hopper Celebration, a ticketed event created to help women network with tech companies, was overrun with male attendees. Colin White, the chief impact officer of the nonprofit that organized the event, said that some attendees had lied about their gender identity on their conference registration. He went on to say, Judging by the stacks and stacks of resumes you're passing out, you did so because you thought you could come here and take up space to try and get jobs. While White may have been surprised that men would seek to take over women's spaces, a mere acquaintance with history would teach him otherwise. Despite protests from trans activists, the Philia Conference, the largest feminist conference in Europe, was held in October in Glasgow, Scotland, featuring speakers such as J.K. Rowling, MP Joanna Cherry, Maria Paredes, Sara Ma, Estelle Tang, and more women from around the world. Due to pressure online, the venue had attempted to cancel the conference just 24 hours before Philia was going to set up for the event. However, Philia's lawyers intervened and the venue reinstated the conference. The conference is attended by over 1,400 women. In Austria, a 24-year-old trans-identified male nurse has admitted to murdering an 82-year-old man who was in his care. Though the man works under the name of Paul, he apparently attacked his patient after his own gender identity came up in conversation. He stabbed the elderly man five times in the chest using knives from the victim's own kitchen and then called the victim's stepdaughter who notified police. First held in a psychiatric ward, the trans-identified man admitted to murder and said it was the result of teasing due to his gender identity. While alcohol was found in his system, no drugs were involved and he has been transferred to regular detention. 16-year-old Armita Garavand of Iran has been declared dead after she was assaulted by the morality police for not wearing hijab. Though authorities state her death was caused by pre-existing medical conditions, eyewitnesses recounted the beating on the Tehran metro on October 1st. Her murder comes just over a year after the murder of Masa Amini, who died in police custody for improperly wearing hijab. In Italy, a 75-year-old woman sued to have her two sons, both over the age of 40, removed from her house. She won, and court papers describe the men as parasites who have lived in their mother's home without making financial contributions or even helping around the house. While the son's lawyer argued that Italian parents are legally required to take care of their children, Judge Simona Coterbi ruled that it no longer appears justifiable considering the two defendants are subjects over 40, and that once a certain age has been exceeded, the child can no longer expect the parents to continue the maintenance obligation beyond limits that are no longer reasonable. That concludes WLRN's World News segment for Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. I'm Mary O'Neill. Share your news stories, announcements, and tips with us by emailing info at wlrnmedia.com and letting us know what's going on. This is Joe Brew, and you are listening to WLRN.
That was Antihero by Taylor Swift. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Emily did with Zanetta, a lesbian radical feminist residing in the Pacific Northwest. When not participating in activist actions, she enjoys writing, geocaching, and analyzing Taylor Swift lyrics. My first question that I kind of wrote down was to talk about like your first memory of being aware of your body. I don't remember the first time I thought about my body, but I do something that is a really formative memory sticking out in my brain is that when I was 10, I started tracking what I ate Mm. and writing judgments next to it. Mm. It's pretty clear that from a pretty young age, my mom was associating good food, bad food and judging for what we ate oh, and yeah. so that just definitely started a lifelong issue with that mm. what was the food like like what kind of food were your parents making were you eating at home as a kid like we were eating at home it was totally normal food too it mm. was just like if I had an extra serving or even one Reese's cup afterwards for dessert mm. when I was like seven or eight I had an experience with my mom where I for some reason like referred to myself as fat and I definitely was not a fat kid like I I was a normal size kid but I referred to myself as fat I called myself fat in front of my mom and my mom was like you're not fat like what are you talking about your body is perfect and great you're fine and I remember thinking oh I get it adults can lie like Cause I was already like, so convinced that, you know, and it, yeah, whatever. I'm sure you have so, you know, like I look back at photos of myself when I was a kid and I was like, God, man, like totally like normal looking kid. But the, you know, I think this happened. I think a lot of women relate to that feeling, obviously like being consumed with, like, I don't know how, if you're, this is your experience, but I also saw my mother dieting at that age. My mom was doing Jenny Craig at, at that age. Did you see your mom diet when you were growing up? I don't really remember seeing my mom diet because she was always rather thin, Mm -hmm. uh, at least in my lifetime. But uh, she did have a high focus on appearance from a really young age. Mm -hmm. It was all about how we looked to other people and looking good, which included weight, makeup, clothing, Mm -hmm. all of that. Um, But when I was a like eighth grader, I think my mom started uh, bodybuilding and going to the gym and like actually competing in bodybuilding competitions. So it really started to affect me even more then. Mm, that's fascinating. Do you feel like, does your mom still do any of that? Like, does she still lift weights? Uh, yeah, she still lifts weights and I do too now, but not, not nearly to the degree my mom does. <laughs> Well, she she was like competing, like yeah, posing, competing, competing, Whoa. like one first place in a bodybuilding competition wow. against women outside her weight class. Um, wow. But back then, you know, she even still is. She would say like, it's not about fat. Like, don't deprive your body of fat because your reproductive organs need it. Mm. It's about balance, but. Mm. It still, it still did affect me. Now she works out a lot, but she also eats a lot of um, yummy food. So tell me, like kind of playing into that, like, can you tell me how you became a radical feminist? And then, yeah, like how feminism maybe affected your relationship with your body? So I didn't become a radical feminist or really start learning about it until like 2019. Um, and it took, I think it took a while for it to really affect how I looked at my body and thought about my body. I think it was meeting you actually a lot that did help me. Um, nice. You were just always talking about how there's not good food or there's bad food. And I just started paying more attention to how I felt after eating food, mm. like physically rather than judging what I eat. Mm. Um, and then there's... I saw a lot of radical feminists talking about uh, that the focus should not be on how our bodies look, but on just being able to do things. 
And so that was something that really helped me. And Mm -hmm. I started just thinking about it like that. And that was actually what made it so I was able to start going to the gym and lifting weights, which has helped my physical pain and helped Mm -hmm. be more able to do more activity fun activities in real life. Mm -hmm. Because when I was looking at it through the lens of weight, my appearance, all of that, it, I couldn't keep motivation to lift weights. Hell yeah, absolutely. No, that super resonates with me. I mean, I think like the idea of going to the gym for me for most of my life was just like, ew, why? Like, I'm not one of those people who like, I I also, I think like a component for me of like eating disorder body image was like, I also felt a really high level of shame about feeling ashamed about my body. Like I was more afraid as like a teenager, like an anorexic teenager, I was more concerned that women or other people would like know that I hated my body than know that I was like starving my myself. Like it felt more shameful that like, you know, and maybe that I wonder how women, you know, young, younger women feel about that as far as like body positivity being much more of like a you know, sort of capitalist thing that is presented in the last several years that it is sort of like, you're supposed to be able to look in your body and be like, girl, I'm the sexiest person ever. And like, I, I hate that. I think that does women a huge disservice. Cause I think what you were saying, like focusing on like what our bodies can do for us and what we're able to do. Like when I was working at a bakery right before the pandemic, I, when I started, one of the things you have to do is like, we're making these huge batches of bread and you have to like stir flour and water together with a wooden paddle is the way we did it. And it was like really hard, (laughs) like five gallons of water and five gallons of flour together. And day by day, like I felt it getting easier. Like it felt really, really hard when I started working there. And then a week later I was like, this like it's the exact same thing that I'm doing. I know it's the same amount because it's the same recipe and it physically feels easier. And that made me, you know, makes me feel awesome. Then I'm like, Oh yeah. Like, hell yeah. I'm like literally building muscle, like by doing this job every day. And when your daily job is like getting easier, then it's like, yeah, I like feeling strong, but hell yeah. I would never, I would have, I would probably still have a hard time actually like going to the gym and, working out even with that in mind but like when I lived at Wee Moon I had a great time chopping wood <laughs> that was like a fun chore that I felt like was like a little workout they're more more functional things can feel different for sure Definitely. I still like and we have our triggers like I still like I tried to do uh like an anti-inflammatory diet for my pain but any kind of restriction, you know, is a trigger to the brain because mm. for obvious reasons, like totally. it's just not some, it's, it's often not something that can be healthy if you've ever dealt with any kind of body image issues. Yeah, I definitely, I was thinking about that this week. I don't know if you saw, there was an article on NPR talking about, a federal, a potential federal ban on red dye 40, I think it is like, because California just passed a law banning it. And it's something that's like banned in Europe. And it's, it's stuff like that, that for me, as someone that's dealt with restriction, you know, it's like, not, you know, being like, don't restrict anything, let yourself eat anything. But then also being like, no, literally, I should probably not eat red sprinkles, <laughs> because like Europe says they'll give me cancer. But, like, that stuff is still really, really like I work at a bakery right now. And we definitely use products that have that in it. And like reading articles like that made me be like, maybe I should not like it's really hard to find that balance between like this is a legitimate thing that they're saying can give you cancer but then it's also like well in what volume in what volume over what time our bodies are pretty resilient in filtering out toxins if you're having a little bit and it's you know your body can probably handle it if you're maybe eating like 40 bright red cupcakes every single day maybe your body can't handle it (laughs) I'm curious if women in European countries have different experiences with orthorexia because their government is more um, 
does more in terms of filtering out actually yeah harmful substances in their food it's not just anything with sugar is bad right right Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think our American food system is a huge, huge contributor and like how, I mean, I've definitely like seen this sentiment in lots of, you know, eating disorder support spaces that it's like, how are you supposed to recover when you still live in the world that we live in? And that's like, yeah, because like, you know, especially that's sort of like what brought up this topic was thinking about, the holidays as a time when, you know, it's like there's increased food talk and there's increased diet talk and there's these tropes that are, you know, repeated and repeated and repeated that are very like normalized. I'm just going to answer. We got a question about what is orthorexia. So orthorexia. um, So most people know like anorexia is like not eating you're like reducing your food intake with the intention, generally speaking, of like making your body smaller. And then like bulimia is like making yourself throw up. There's like lots of different kinds of eating disorders. And orthorexia is something that I think clinically they started using that word and identifying it in the 90s is when it first like became a thing that was recognized and but has become like way more prevalent now and it's defined as the unhealthy obsession with healthy eating so like how for me like when I was in high school I was like straight up anorexic I was 14 years old I was like I like one of my my like catalyst you know everything had like primed me right and then I like didn't get asked to homecoming my freshman year and a bunch of my friends did. And I was like, it must be because I'm fatter than all of them. I should stop eating. And that was like a clear thought, anorexia. I'm going to eat less food to make my body smaller. And orthorexia in my late twenties, I was like having some health issues and I was having stomach problems and I went to a doctor and the doctor was like, your health issues could be caused from eating these different foods. You should stop eating those foods. And so I like, you know, tried to reduce eating those foods. And then it just over the course of a couple of years spiraled into this thing where I was like not eating basically in the same functional way that I was as a high school anorexic, but it was different because I wasn't, I wasn't, I didn't think that I was doing it to make myself skinny. I thought I was doing it because I needed to as health. So that's generally like what, how orthorexia is that it's like when you're uh, reduced, you know, basically like restricting what you're eating, but you're doing it on the basis of like, this is going to be healthy for me. So I think this is like a huge, 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 massive issue with women, young women, old women these days that I think like, you know, in the nineties, like when I was growing up, my mom was doing Jenny Craig and there was commercials for Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers. And it was very much like, you're fat girl, lose all that weight. Like it was pretty explicit. Like I remember this TV commercial for yogurt when I was a kid that maybe it was in the early two thousands that had that song about like the itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini. And it was like, you better eat your skinny yogurt so you can fit into that bikini. And now I think what we see most on social media is like lifestyle healthy. I'm having my green smoothie this morning and that's all I'm having for breakfast is green juice because health or whatever. And like functionally, is very similar to uh, anorexia. Anyway, that is what orthorexia is. Heather says 1997. That sounds about right. That orthorexia was uh, was identified. Yeah, yeah. It's like, I mean, I don't know how much you how much time I'm trying to stay off the TikTok right now. I don't know how much time you're spending on TikTok, but I see it on TikTok. <sighs> what I eat in a day, so many videos of what I eat in a day that are, I'm like, oh my God, this girl, like that sounds like an eating disorder. You know, do you find that? Do you find it hard being on social media and seeing stuff like that? I try to spend less than an hour a day on TikTok now and my algorithm has changed a lot, Mm. but I used to see that often. And it was definitely something that sent me through cycles Mm. because like I have chronic illnesses and I feel like I'm primed to be easily convinced Mm. that I can fix them with 
eating a different way. And when you have like restrictive tendencies, when you have obsessive tendencies, and when you're in a society that promotes both those things, it's, there's not really a good way to totally restrict something without going into orthorexia. Right. I think TikTok, internet, all of that, it's really promoting orthorexia in a really big way. And it's less obvious. So I think that makes it more pervasive and dangerous. Yeah. Hell yeah, sister. I totally agree with you. But yeah, I don't know. It scares me. It scares me how, um, I mean, whatever we dealt with this, you know, this was also a thing in the early two thousands of seeing, I would see magazine articles with celebrity interviews talking about their diets And I think it's the same thing today where you you can have a magazine that's like, oh, here's a very healthy, normal day of eating. And it's like 1200 calories, which is not a a, not a calorie amount for an adult. Tell me about a childhood comfort food of yours that you still enjoy today. Can you tell me yours first? Well, I think macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese was my everything as a kid. Like probably like, I'm not even kidding you. It was probably like 50% of the food I ate was macaroni and cheese because I was like a picky eater. Like I was raised vegetarian. So there was already a level of restriction. And then I think, yeah, whatever. I like became, I think for me, being a picky eater as a kid was because I was shown and told that like having control over the food that you eat is like a power that you have. And that is how you have power in your life is by controlling the food that you eat. And I totally internalized that and became a very picky eater as, you know, whatever, lots of, I don't know, the, I think that there's something when you're living in a big, scary world and things are scary and changing, there's something incredibly comforting about having food that tastes exactly the same as it did last time that, you know, you like, that, you know, is going to taste good and is going to feel, you know, satisfying. So mac and cheese for me. I mean, when I was a kid, I was definitely like an Annie's. That's what we had, Annie's box mac and cheese. I don't eat that so much mm-hmm. now. Like I want a little, I know. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I wasn't really able to exercise a lot of control over what I ate when I was younger because my mom, like she made the meal plans and then she did not want us touching the kitchen. So mm-hmm. I didn't cook until I was an adult. But the things I loved the most and was always the most excited to have were Kraft mac and cheese mm. and chocolate milk. Mm. Oh, chocolate milk. So, like a nice creamy chocolate milk. Yeah. Yum. Oh, my God. I Chocolate milk was a delicacy that I only had at other people's houses when I was growing up. We had skim milk at my house. We had skim milk except when we had chocolate milk. And then yeah. my mom bought like 1%. <laughs> that's so funny how did you feel about holiday food like does like the holidays evoked specific feelings about food and body for you I have always loved the holiday food I'm also a sucker for food you only get certain times of the Mm. year um but I also feel like that was the time we got the most of like good food Mm. and so I would overstuff and then feel bad about myself because I was like uncomfortably full. Mm. And then everyone is always, like you said earlier, making those comments about like, oh, I really shouldn't have another cookie or, oh, I'm going to got to go take a walk after dinner before I can have dessert and like those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So it was always a combination of like feeling good and bad about food. Yeah. I know you, okay, so you already kind of talked about this, but we both share, uh, neither of us learned how to cook until we were adults. What was your experience of learning how to cook? So I wasn't quite an adult, but I started living alone when I was 16. And I still cannot handle the smell of Top Ramen. It makes me start gagging because I just ate excessive amounts of Top Ramen and thought I was being clever when I uh, fried it with, eggs and broccoli (laughs) so that was (laughs) largely my the beginning of my experience and then for years I just made like microwavable food and food that didn't really make me physically feel good Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't really start making homemade food until the last few years and it was when I started being interested in cooking for someone else 
But I started putting in the effort to learn how to cook, which is a whole thing in its own of like, mm-hmm. why not put in the effort for yourself to have mm-hmm. satisfying food that makes you feel good? Hell yeah. That's totally, uh, you know, a woman, like, I feel like that's such a woman's experience of like caretaking. You know, it's easier to care for someone else and cook for someone else than to care and cook for yourself big time. That, yeah. What about you? What was your experience like? Um, yeah, I didn't learn how to cook until I would really say like my mid twenties because I moved to New York city when I was 19 and I, the only thing I knew how to cook when I was 19 is like box macaroni and cheese, or maybe I could like make spaghetti and put like a tomato sauce on it. That was like, that was really the extent of like my cooking skills at 19. And And I lived in New York, so I didn't need to cook. I just always ate out. I would like eat, you know, eat two bagels a day. A lot of the time was a two bagel day. And when I, and so it's funny for me because like when I, I learned, started learning how to cook as part of my orthorexia because I was, I became very paranoid about, you know, wanting to eat healthy food and I didn't eat healthy food. I was still a picky eater. I was still like a cheese and, you know, I expanded my, my preferences a little bit, but still was on a very restricted diet. And yeah, so I wanted to learn, have you heard of the whole 30? Are you familiar with that diet? At one point. (laughs) Yeah. My family, my whole, I was living with my whole family at the time and everyone in the family was doing it was like my dad was going out of town and everyone else in the family was like we're doing this we need to do this we're all eating unhealthy we're all you know like out of control or whatever and so it was like we did the whole the first month of the whole 30 was me and my mom and my brother and my sister-in-law and the kids were still, we, the, you know, my brother, my nieces and nephews were eating normal kid food. We didn't make them do the whole 30, thankfully. Um, but yeah, it was like, I like, that was like the first catalyst of like learning to cook because my family was doing the whole 30. Okay. So the whole 30, it's a book and like a diet and like a lifestyle. And it's basically an elimination diet. I do think the idea of the kind of like take things out, add things back in makes sense. And it's something that doctors do want people to do often with like stomach issues. But at the same time, it's, it's one of those things that can really easily trigger more serious issues in someone that will end up hurting their health more Mm. Or like, you know, like in your issue or in your case, it just ignored the real issue, Mm. which was a bacterial infection. (laughs) And I had um, a doctor actually tell me that she didn't want me to keep doing the, um, I was doing the anti-inflammatory diet. And she told me she didn't want me to keep doing it like a hundred percent that she wanted me to just like do it 80% because she thought it was unhealthy mentally. And she felt Mm -hmm. bad that she had prescribed people to do that in the past. Wow. Do you, do you feel like you have good care team people who are down with, cause I think that's like a big thing women struggle with, right? Is like, if you're going the anti-diet route, if you're like, Hey, this hasn't worked for me in the past, it can be extremely hard to find providers who are also in that mindset because medical school is like fat, bad. If someone's fat, tell them to lose weight. And they all walk out of medical school or dietitian school like with that kind of training. I I think I do have a pretty good care team now. Like they don't try to push like hardcore diets. They say you should do things like 80/20 because it's better for you mentally and mm-hmm. mental stress affects the body. Um awesome. and my one provider that even mention like how losing weight can help with a certain thing. She made, she was very careful with how she presented it and she took maybe 10 seconds and just said uh, like, I want you to know that this isn't like any kind of 
intense thing, but some people do find benefit from losing a, like a little bit of weight. Mm-hmm. And she's like, but you would need to do it like healthy, just focus on like blah, blah, blah. And I appreciated that. And then she just went straight on from that into like actually doing other things to help with the issues. Nice. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you found like good, good team, a good team. One dude, a neurologist, even not even a like primary care that told me I should lose a pound a day. And he told me like a specific diet, the South beach something. And I was like, but isn't that unhealthy? I thought that like in order for our organs to be okay, you're not supposed to lose more than two pounds a week. Like even like people, that are 600 pounds can't lose seven pounds a week unless they're you know like in the hospital that's dangerous mm. and he's like i'm not your father don't uh fight back <laughs> oh my god he sounds like such a jerk are you familiar with the minnesota starvation experiment this is one of my favorite things to talk about i've heard of it but I'm not very familiar this for me, when I was in full-blown orthorexia, reading about the Minnesota starvation experiment, like, changed me. It it helped me break f- from, like, the orthorexic thinking and get back to, like, I don't know, I guess seeing, like, the how extreme it was or sort of it, it really, like, broke me mentally into wanting to recover. Anyway, so the Minnesota starvation experiment was a experiment done by the American government in, during World War II where basically they were like, hey, we're liberating people from concentration camps and, and, and war, and they are in a very abject level of starvation, and we want to figure out how to healthily like refeed people from starvation because there's something called refeeding syndrome like when you've been starved and you eat like it can cause severe metabolic issues in your body that can kill you and so the government wanted to figure out how to uh safely refeed people what they did was they took conscientious objectors so like men that had been drafted but didn't want to fight who were all like super healthy able-bodied 19 year old i don't know if they were all white but i would assume that they all were but maybe i'm wrong about that um and what they did was like they put them on a normal healthy diet that i think was like 3,000 calories something like that for like a few months and monitored them and like got all this information. And then they put them on a semi-starvation diet for a period of months. And then they like went into like a refeeding. And what they found with these men when they were in this semi-starvation, which I will tell you was 1600 calories a day. That was the semi-starvation that they put these men on was 1600 calories, which is more than a lot of magazine diets will tell you like I when I was a teenager I remember reading 1200 calories was like the you know if you're on a diet do 1200 calories which is like even lower than what these men were on and the effects that they had were profound I mean they were um, fighting and depressed and anxiety and stealing food and getting into trouble and doing mischief to try and get food and doing things like cutting their food into tiny little pieces to make it last longer. And a couple of them totally dropped out of the study and they were eating non-food things like they, and it was like for lack of a better description, like driving them crazy. And Yeah, like reading about the Minnesota starvation experiment that it was like healthy young men that were like what America would consider peak fitness were turned into, you know, crazy ravenous like lunatics in like the matter of a few months because they were their food was restricted. That I who that I like to love telling people about that because I think hearing 1600 calories and when you really read about the effects that these you know young men were put under it's like it put gives it gives me perspective for what when i see things in the media that are like someone being like here's what i ate in a day when i'm a 
you know, a college athlete and here's how I stay healthy. And here's my day of 1800 calories. And it's like, Ooh, is that, a you know, like, but then I'll, you know, depends anyway. on height and exercise, but still. Right. Well, cause then the other thing, you know, everybody's body is different. And all of our bodies have different needs and our bodies have different needs day to day. If you're doing more activity one day, you need more calories than on a day where you're not doing a lot of, you know, activity. But yeah, it's such a hangry thing. And the characterization of women on diets being like angry and snappy and all of that and the way it's kind of made fun of. Yeah. I feel like if it was a men majority thing, that wouldn't be right thing right even once you're into radical feminism and you know reversing your ideas of body image it can still be difficult to get that kind of stuff out of your brain like earlier uh when we first started our discussion i almost said junk food instead of yummy food (laughs) i had to pause and catch myself or the like hesitation to eat something like that in an office space or mm. like the free snacks mm. it's just like how how does that ever come out of your brain i mean i hope with time <laughs> i have i mean i do i have faith that with more time more yeah because when i if you really look and maybe this is true for you if you think back in your own history but i know for me if i i can look back and see a very measurable difference of how i've changed like when i was really anorexic and when i was really orthorexic and my body dysmorphia was at its absolute worst like when i was at my thinnest was when i hated my body the most when i had the most hatred for my body and i remember what it felt like to look in the mirror and like think that I was fat, but have measurable evidence in front of me that not only was I not fat, but I was thinner than I'd ever been. Like I, when I was going through this, I had like, I'm a sewer, I can alter my own clothing. So I got into this thing where I would put something on and it would be too big. And I would put it in a pile of these things are too big, they need to be altered. And then I had a day where I was getting ready for work. And I was like, where the heck are all my clothes? And they were all in the pile of like things that needed to be altered. And I was like, how is that possible? When I look in the mirror, all I see is fatness. And but none of my clothes fit. And these are the smallest clothes I've ever worn. How are these two things possible? And like, that is profound to think back at that time, because I don't have when I look in the mirror, I don't feel that way. And like, I was so thin then. And all I saw was fatness. And I am fat now. And now when I look in the mirror, I'm just like, that's what I look like. You know, I don't have feeling so much. I mean, sometimes maybe if I'm like getting ready for a job interview or I'm not saying that I don't ever have negative thoughts about the way I look. Sure. I'm more just sort of like, I don't know. I'm like a fat, ugly lady now. And that's like what it is. And I'm okay with it. And that is so different than how it was maybe a decade ago for me, where I would look in the mirror and just be like, ew, I hate it. I look so ugly. This part's wrong. And this part's wrong. And so I think with the thinking, it's the same thing that I think with more time, more time in a healthy setting, in a positive setting with other women that those things will become, you know, it'll be less like I have to catch myself before I say it, you know, like in the same way of like, you know, calling it junk food or calling it yummy food. I would say like, as a feminist, I'm trying to like eliminate the word, the bitch word out of my language. And that, you know, comes more easily at times than others. And I do, you know, I think it's a process, but yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't remember what feminist said that, you know, who's the feminist who has the theory about the ever watchful patriarchy that oh. lives in our mind. like that. Cause that's what it is. It's like the enslavement of our minds having, I mean, this is like, I know whatever women talk about this all the time, that that is like such a true enslavement of our minds that like just thinking about food and our bodies and like all the things I do have more time and more creativity in my mind now that I'm not thinking about how shitty my body looks all the time. Like definitely. 
I feel like it's a lot easier to go into body neutrality versus body positivity. Yes. Do you think the body positivity movement has like harmed? Yes. (laughs) I absolutely, I think for me trying to go from body hatred to body love was impossible okay before we hop off because we're going to keep this one a little short the one last thing i really really want to talk to you about is the taylor swift music video where she in anti-hero she changed one of the moments after uh complaints from people would you i would love it if you would like explain what happened and we can talk about it So her music video was all about how she is like the anti-hero. She's not all she's chalked up to be. And there's kind of like the performance Taylor and the regular Taylor. And the regular Taylor gets on a scale and the scale just displays the word fat. Well, the performance slash evil Taylor is behind her looking in the mirror. And people threw a fit on the internet and said that she was being fat phobic by writing that and she so quickly almost like she expected it to happen took the word fat out and just left Mm -hmm. the scale and i i thought that was just absurd because she was displaying an issue that she struggles with she's talked about her issues with eating disorders before and the idea that only fat people can talk about being like afraid of being fat is just Mm. kind of absurd to me like if anything that does not help to with eating disorders just contributes Mm. to them heck yeah i completely agree i felt like i felt like the change in the music video completely like destroyed the meaning that was meant to be in that moment because in my interpretation it was her looking at the scale and and having sadness in her face because it said fat the scale is telling me no matter what number it says all it says is fat and she's like ugh. and then performance taylor is like like shakes her head like no implying that what the scale says like the scale saying you're fat is wrong and when you take out that moment of seeing that the scale says fat it looks like performance taylor is being like yeah girl the number on that scale sucks that's how I felt it. I felt like it hmm, like made it say exactly the opposite of what that moment was supposed to say. I was like really crushed when that change happened. Yeah. And every if all women can't talk about their experiences with like eating disorders and body image and the fear of being fat, which is hoisted onto all of us, regardless of our size. Mm. And there's just going to be some women left behind. And that's not really right. And it's a powerful representation. Like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I agree. I think one of the things that it's like a continual, you know, it's like the ways in which feminism might be bringing us together and then the ways in which patriarchy are still pulling us apart. You want to have camaraderie with other women over these issues of like feeling like society has hated you. And obviously like fat people are suffering from like systemic fat phobia in so many different ways of like how it's negatively affecting our lives as fat people. But that absolutely extends to like every single person of, you know, who's being affected by it. And I, as someone that used to be skinny and is now fat, I definitely, I have a lot of compassion and understanding for fat people that are like, ew, shut up, skinny person. You don't know what it's like. Because there are things that fat people are experiencing that skinny people are not experiencing. But yeah, like, I don't know, like when I was in my recovery at a certain point, I was wanting to seek out like body positivity spaces. And I wanted to be basically like around fat people who were loving their bodies. And I felt like that was going to help me. But I also felt like, like there was a couple of, uh, you know, get togethers and things that in my area that were like geared towards like body positive fatness. But I was like, I'm still too skinny. I'm not allowed. I shouldn't go to these things. People are going to be mad at me if I show up because I'm still thin right now and they're going to feel like I'm not supposed to be there. And so I like didn't go to some of these things that probably would have benefited me 
but maybe it would have made some fat people uncomfortable if I was there trying to like talk about how much how much scared like I get that obviously like the way that the body positivity movement kind of divided is just mm-hmm. wild to me. even with people who are actually fat like there mm-hmm. is still this division of like oh you're fat but you're a, I don't remember all the terms there's like small fat all the way to independent right. fat And so like people will act that way, even to women who are size extra large, two X, because they're not a six X. And it's just like, I think I agree. It just divides us more. It's an understanding that some people are going to have a different experience because they're more or less fat, but like taking away their voice or their space in a community meant for all women is just kind of absurd to me. Absolutely. But yeah, I want body liberation. I want body neutrality for women of all sizes. I think it, I mean, it helped me. It liberated me like coming to a place of focusing on, um, yeah. Like one thing that helped me in recovery is I had, uh, I did a gratitude list where I was like gratitude for my body. Like I love my body for, being able to get up in the morning. I love having 10 fingers and 10 toes. I love being able to move my fingers and like appreciating all of the ways that my body does function and all the functionality that I do have instead of focusing on what it looks like. All women should. Yeah. Our body's just a vessel for us to move through the world. And I mean, our body's also us like, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Just because you said that uh, last, last thing before we sign off, I would just love to talk briefly about, yeah, sort of like transhumanism, how I like transhumanism, how transgenderism connects to body hatred and like this idea of um, your body is a project that you can change and how that is. I think it's the same as an eating disorder or it's, could be considered similar what do you think i think so yeah um i don't maybe more with um anorexia Mm -hmm. than uh orthorexia Mm because orthorexia does tend to be focused on like i guess it's still changing your body in terms of your physical health or like attempting to but that's an interesting thought for sure what do you think yeah i mean i when I was in eating disorder treatment, there was at least two or three people in my support group at the clinic who were trans identified. And I was trans identified at the time too. I identified as non-binary and yeah, I mean, I think the prevalence of eating disorders in trans identified people are incredibly high. I think there is absolutely like a, these things go together. I hate my body. It's too fat. I hate my body. It's too feminine. I hate my body. It's too masculine. Like is all, I mean, I think personally, I think all gender dysphoria is just body dysmorphia. I think it's like redundant, you know, they created that phrase to make it like special for trans issues, but like, Gender dysphoria is body dysmorphia. You're feeling discomfort with your body. And the reason, oh, it's because I'm supposed to be in a woman's body. I'm supposed to be in a man's body as opposed to I'm supposed to be in a thin body. I'm supposed to be in, you know, a a more muscular body. Like, I think those totally are the same. And I think it's, like, pretty horrifying to think about this like this transhumanist future where you're going to like go into a surgery factory that's gonna, you know, I, I, I wouldn't see a difference in, I mean, I don't know how doctors differentiate and I'm sure a lot of them don't with their trans patients of like, well, this person is saying that they don't like, you know, she says that her hips are too big and it makes her dysphoric because she wants to look like a man. So maybe we can do liposuction on her hips to make her hips smaller. And like, that's stupid and horrible. Women <laughs> that like, identify as women also face. I see what you're saying. Right, right. Like, I hate. Of, have you read the book Uglies? No, I haven't. It's you. I think you would like it. It's this series all about um, a society where when the girls turn sixteen, they go through this transformation and they're turned into pretties. 
And so like their entire appearance has changed to be like the stereotypical pretty. And it's around this girl who tries to escape that because she doesn't want to have her whole self changed in order for her appearance. I want to, the uglies? Uglies. I'll read that. That sounds really good. From across the femisphere to women worldwide, worldwide to women worldwide, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, break the sound barrier, radical feminist media to break the sound barrier. This is your grassroots, 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 grassroots community radio station. This is your radio station. Women's Liberation Radio News. It's hard to know where to start on the subject of female body image. Women's relationship with our bodies has always been difficult, often painful. Virtually all of us spend time in youth hating our bodies, feeling shame and embarrassment about how we look and of our biological processes. Some women never stop feeling that hate. Our bodies are what make us vulnerable to male violence and sexual predation. Our bodies are the reason patriarchy exists. Why men have spent all of history controlling us, dominating us, and victimizing us. There is so much fear, shame, anger, sorrow, and disgust in the collective female psyche around our bodies. And our bodies are ourselves. It's impossible to love, respect, value, and take care of yourself properly if you feel entirely or mostly negative about your body. Women who don't love, respect, and care for themselves are easy for men to control, abuse, and exploit. Those women won't stand up for themselves in near any situation. Women's poor body image contributes to their cooperation in their own oppression. This is by male design. Heteropatriarchal society picks apart the female body from head to toe, making us self-conscious about our weight, the size of our breasts, the color and texture of our skin, the style and texture of our hair, the width of our hips, the size of our buttocks, how old or young we look, our body hair that we're expected to routinely remove the second it shows up, our height, our lips, our feet, name it. This fosters an obsession with our looks that men, of course, then mock and claim as evidence of inherent female vanity, even as they insult our looks publicly and privately, online and offline for fun. Women and girls spend an insane amount of money and time on makeup, dieting, cosmetic surgery, shapewear, hairstyling, personal trainers, etc. And all the while, most of us still think we're ugly or fat or too old looking or otherwise not good enough physically. All those photo filters on cell phones and social media have given women and girls the ability to create the same illusion of themselves that women's magazines in the fashion industry used to exclusively pull with Photoshop and airbrushing. Eating disorders haven't gone anywhere since their heyday in the 90s and 2000s despite the fact women generally know better now than to normalize them. The most conventionally attractive young women in society are often just as insecure as the rest of the female population about their bodies and their looks, and in the end, as all the female celebrities of the Me Too phenomenon prove to us, having the looks men idealize doesn't save you from their violence anyway. Speaking of which, because we as women live in vulnerability to that physical and sexual male violence, our bodies are the sources of fear, trauma, and pain. Our biology renders us both physically weaker than men and capable of pregnancy. If not for that combination, men never would have been able to hold power over us. 
It's tempting to feel betrayed by our own bodies because of these insurmountable biological facts. It's tempting to make an enemy of your own body after a man has beaten you or raped you or even scared you into submission with the spoken or unspoken threat of those possibilities. To blame your body as a separate entity from yourself is already a neurotic act of self-hate, but for many women, that's less painful than fully identifying with their bodies after experiencing male violence or even just aggressive misogyny. Women and girls have to consciously work to heal their relationship to their own bodies even while living with the reality that our bodies are the site of our victimization and disadvantage in patriarchy. That's the ironic challenge laid before us. It's no easy task, and in my opinion, usually not a single permanent achievement. It's a lifelong practice. When it comes to creating a positive body image, I think most women's goals at the start of the process should be healing and removing the male gaze from their own consciousness. Temporarily suspend any thoughts you have about your physical attractiveness as much as you can, and instead try to see your body through a different lens. It's not an object put on this earth for men to look at and get off to. It's your home for as long as you're alive, the way you experience the world. Regardless of how you look, your body is always that. We should be appreciating our bodies for their health, for the life they give us, for the freedom and pleasure they allow us to experience. Gratitude is always a good place to begin when you want to feel better about something. No matter what you look like, how old you are, or what condition your health is in, I guarantee you have more than one thing to be grateful for where your body is concerned. Gratitude is the exact opposite of the self-punishment and judgment most women treat their bodies with. Cultivate gratitude for your body. As for healing, there are many different kinds of therapy and spirituality practices you can use to recover from abuse, sexual trauma, and a lifetime of negative thinking. In all likelihood, you'll need a combination of tools and plenty of time. You can work with a therapist or by yourself. First, recognize that you have healing to do in the relationship you have with your body. Get honest about how critical you are of it, how unhappy you are with it, how you really feel. Consider how much anger, fear, and shame you feel toward your body. Identify not only the toxic thoughts you have about it, but all the ways you treat your body badly. With food, femininity, exercise or lack thereof, drugs and alcohol, etc. Ask yourself what the loving thought or choice toward your body would be, and start cutting out whatever isn't loving. I'm not going to tell you there's anything wrong with wanting to feel physically attractive. There isn't. I think it's good for women to like the way they look, to genuinely consider themselves beautiful. But you have to find a way to believe that without allowing it to define your value. It's tricky. That's why if you have a negative body image right now, you should drop the attractiveness factor completely until you build a solid foundation of gratitude and do the healing work. Once you genuinely feel that your worth and value as a woman and the worth and value of your female body are totally independent of your attractiveness, then you can work on feeling attractive. Notice that feeling attractive has nothing to do with other people's opinions, worth what you wear or how much makeup you use or any of that crap. It's a belief you have about yourself, a belief that no one else's opinion can sway. When you finally feel attractive, you won't even wonder if anybody agrees. You won't care, and you won't compare yourself to other women. Bottom line, you only get one body to live in, and to hate it is to hate yourself. Don't allow men or the patriarchy to succeed in making you hate your own body. Even if it's been harmed, even if it doesn't look the way you prefer, even if it isn't 100% healthy or able, 
you still deserve to be at peace with it. All the things women do to try to make themselves more sexually attractive isn't going to give you that peace. Get off that hamster wheel and start to raise your feminist consciousness on the subject of your body. Stop looking outside of yourself for validation. Look inward. Thanks for listening to WLRN's 91st edition podcast on body image and feminism. WLRN would like to thank our guests this month for sharing her views on this topic. Thank you so much, Zanetta, for taking the time to speak with us and offer your perspective. Until next time, this is Jenna signing off on another WLRN podcast. If you like what you're hearing and would like to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you're interested in joining our team, we're always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post on our Facebook page and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Emily signing off for now. And I am Thistle Pedersen. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we'll focus our program on the war in the Middle East and its impacts on women and children. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, December 7th. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interview are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. This is Kathleen Miles, WLRN's newest member. It is so good to be here, sisters. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Thank you for listening. And this is Mary. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please like, share, and comment widely. for the patriarchal kiss how will we find what needs to be shown and then after that where is home